Today, I'm talking with Joachim Reinke about requirements and why you deliberately want to have them. Welcome to episode 38. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Georg Lohre, and this is the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. You get know-how, tools, processes, and more surplus information in this podcast. Or in a nutshell, I give you my best for your success in embedded systems projects. Midst of April, I was joining the systems camp at the bar camp in Berlin. About 40 interested persons, mainly engineers, have met to discuss about all aspects of systems engineering. And in this context, requirements engineering was highlighted. Requirements engineering, that's something that re refers to uh, the process of defining, documenting and maintaining requirements. And it's located somehow close to the subfields of systems engineering and software engineering. I have had only some kind of vague understanding about requirements engineering and what does it mean in particular. My idea was located still on the waterfall model, something like the first phase, that was the defining clarification, planning, requirements, specification, whatsoever phase. And But now what, what about this, all, all the other aspects now, all the other methods we have? They have Scrum or Regional Unified Process or Extreme Programming, what is, whatsoever. So where it is foreseen to have some kind of continuous requirements engineering, but how should that be done? So for me, back I'm back to the question, what is requirements engineering effectively? How can it be done? How does it look like in real life? And who can do it? And who can support you if you want to do it? And if there is an open question, you have regularly two ways to solve it yeah, or to resolve it. So first, you can do it by yourself. So you can study books and materials. Or, for me, the much more appropriate approach is to ask someone who knows something, so something about the topic, of course. So, And today, I'm really happy to have an elaborated specialist for requirements engineering within the episode. It's Joachim Reinke. Uh, Joachim is an engineer who specialized in the area of requirements engineering. He is the crack in this area of the development and the production process. By the way, if there is someone you consider to be worthwhile for an interview or if you have an interesting topic in mind, do not hesitate and drop me a note about that. So use the contact or feedback page on my website. Let me know about the person or about your topic. I will tackle it. I will maintain it in the show. Or get in touch with me with the Twitter account or with, with Twitter or with, via LinkedIn, whatever you prefer. So, but now... Let's jump right into it, the tech chat about requirements engineering. Stay tuned and be inspired. Joachim, tell us briefly what you do. Yeah, well, what I do is, um, I, actually, I do two things. First, I am um, a product manager with a medical device company named uh, Bytronic. Uh, they are more or less, um, well, you, you can imagine, they make um, cardiac pacemakers, in, implantable cardiac pacemakers. And of course, these devices do have software. They have really critical software because these pacemakers, um, they deal with critical situations in patients' hearts. So it's uh, good to be on the on the safe side when you um, set up to, to um, have a software program running these um, pacemakers. Yes. So that's one thing. And next to that, I do freelancing in the area of requirements engineering and requirements management um, because that's something which I have in common in the um, biotronic job as well as in my freelancing job. It sounds quite amazing, quite interesting to talk with you about the very first part, what you have mentioned, the implantable cardio pacemaker. So, but today we have this kind of chat about the requirements engineering. So the second part of what you're doing. And could you please tell us what exactly does requirements engineering mean? Yeah, requirements engineering is a term which basically um, uh, is rooted in the ISO IEC 12207 norm. And to a lesser extent, but as well... In the ISO IEC 15504, that's the SPICE norm, and um, their requirements engineering is defined as a method of efficiently and systematically 
deriving an explicit specification of a product, oh. which is agreed upon by all stakeholders there are. But you and have to ex method, explain that. You have to explain that, yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, this, this method this, um, comp comprises a finding requirements for a product and negotiating and consolidating those requirements between all stakeholders, which may have different interests and different values so that they have conflicts beyond each other, and uh, structuring and writing down these requirements so that everyone can understand them, beginning from some contractor over some validation people to developers and marketing, that everyone is on the same side and everyone um, understands the same thing about what the product is set out to be like. And finally, uh, it comprises testing requirements as to their degree of validity, which does not mean test whether the product fulfills them, but to test whether how they are written down is, is good and is good in a way that can be achieved. So that's basically those four major activities which, uh, which can be understood under requirements engineering. Sometimes you hear the term requirements management. It's used in the literature as well. It's um, not exactly out of these norms, but well, yeah, you can usually you, you can use both terms and no one will complain. Okay. Uh, this sounds now, I don't want to say it, it sounds much theoretical, but it has some touch of that. So I think we should do have to get a little bit closer with all the, all the topics of requirements engineering. Do we have some kind of practical situations in mind? So how does requirements engineering look like effectively? Yeah, let's we, we can start with some some nice examples, some nice juicy yeah. examples, uh, what, what requirements may look like. And we can take a look at why a requirement should better not look like that. And okay. um, from there, we might want to talk a little bit about the benefit of why putting effort into requirement engineering is a good thing to do. So let's start with a. Let's let's start with um, one of a few requirements I have stumbled across in my job, for real. One I one I had earlier this year was um, was the following sentence as a requirement to a product, and the sentence was, "The product must leave the impression of being high quality." Okay. From a marketing standpoint, or maybe from a non-very technical product management standpoint, this is pretty much okay. This is um, this is what you want. You you want to convey a feeling of of um, we have thought about this, we have done our job, and this is valuable. What you get for your money? Yes. This is from from that standpoint. It's it's totally okay, but. Um, what um, the uh, the art of requirements engineering is to um, figure out what a requirement means for everyone involved, for all stakeholders involved. And now try to imagine yourself in a position of a, say, a software developer. It might be a hard way to go. It might yeah. be hard. <laughs> Yes. What would you do in order to make the product, which you only realize a very tiny part of, leave the impression of being high quality to a customer which is completely unknown to you? Maybe you don't even write the software for a dedicated part of the product, but for a platform part. That means you are even further away. Yes. And requirements engineering sets out to... Um, to, to help every party involved with reframing and rephrasing such a sentence in a way that everyone will say, yeah, that's exactly what I meant when I wrote impression of being high quality. And as well to the developer that the developer knows, yes, this is what I'm going to do in order to make that happen. That's just one, one typical situation of, okay. of requirements engineering where where re requirements engineering is is done um, done less professionally than possible. Okay, and how do you resolve it then? 
there is a very nice, um, there is, of, of course, there's a very nice, um, let's say it's a kind of algorithm um, which has one particular spot which, which um, kicks in here. And um, what can be done about this is, um, you remember I said one thing about um, requirements engineering is consolidating requirements. Mm -hmm. And when I read things like these, and I read things like these very often, I've got still lots of examples of these up my sleeve. When I read things like these, I usually ask the author of this, what is the impression of being high quality to you? Can you, can you um, rephrase that so that it can be measured objectively? Mm -hmm. Because there is someone at the end of the line, um, a verifier who needs to know whether he can uh, tick that one off or not. Yes. And that's not you, because at that point of time, you may be not around anymore. Mm. And um, this has one um, particular quality, um, uh, which can be um, tested for requirements, and the quality is, um, is it measurable? And an impression of being high quality is not exactly measurable. Maybe right. there is something diffuse in the mind of the marketing manager or product manager who wrote that down. But that mind is not there where things have to be evaluated in terms of it has been fulfilled or not. So we need to talk about this in a different fashion. Mm -hmm. So we need to rephrase it in order to make it measurable. Usually these kind of requirements, these, these rather emotional requirements, and we do have them in products. Mm -hmm. And it's good that we have them in products. And it's good that marketing managers or product managers think about these kind of requirements when um, they want to, to have a new product. You usually would measure that maybe via a usability study and via um, questionnaires handed out to users of a prototype maybe. Mm -hmm. And you ask them, what's the impression you, you have from this prototype? Is it high quality? Is it mid medium quality? Is it low quality? Maybe you're going going to, to try to uh, figure out whether it has been met or not like this. You, you simply take this rather unspecified term of quality in that context and simply uh, phrase it or connotate it with something like high, middle, low quality. Is it like that? That may be an approach. There okay. may be other approaches. You may uh, dig into the person which wrote that down initially and just ask that person, what's, what's, what exactly makes such a product have a high quality to you? Why did you write that down in the first place? Is it the look and feel? Is it, um, is it a, being rather heavy? Is it because like of the nice finish? What, what's, uh, what's, what does the impression of high quality evoke in you? Mm -hmm. that, that would be another, another possibility. Or even you can combine those two. But that's just one example where, um, where a seasoned requirements engineer would jump in and say, you, you can't leave it like that. Okay. And it's not because, um, uh, as French say, l'art pour l'art, because it has, of course, it has, um, it has to, to fulfill a benefit. Why, why would we do that? Why would we requirements engineers jump in here and... Mm -hmm. um, it's of, co of course because uh, of benefit for the product. So we may want to talk about uh, which benefits um, good requirements engineer can get you if you want to. Yes, it's pretty much fine to discuss about the benefits. Maybe it's, I'm, I still have some kind of gap to understand because there is, a, a, you talked about if there might be some kind of a prototype available or some kind of uh, of product which is already available so that the, that the guys could simply give some kind of evaluation about their feeling of quality. But if I think I'm at the very beginning of the product, so I'm, all, uh, I'm only thinking about what it could be finally, then I do not have anything of that. But I think we already uh, should take uh, requirements engineering into account at that point too. 
if you um, start before anything like that, and if you start to um, guide this with a requirements engineering approach as well, then we would rather be in the business modeling phase. And even in the business modeling phase, if you do it with the, say, the um, Osterwalder approach, then you have one very central piece of information you need to get clear very early about. And that piece of information is the answer to the question, which value do we want to provide to the future customers? Okay. So we are already at the value term. and. We we may want to to address this question, this which value question, um, not just with one or two very abstract nouns, but we may want to uh, illustrate those nouns, those values, with examples. Mm-hmm. And if we have the chance to write down those value propositions um, using examples, um, we can rather often derive um, measures for high quality, medium quality, or low quality. Um, let's, let's make an example. Take the iPhone. Okay. The value proposition of the iPhone was, when it was invented, beyond other things, it was the seamless integration into... Um, a market full of apps. No one had that before, right? You could not just connect to a market and, and download apps. They were they were fixed, installed on your phone, and either you had what you were looking for or you didn't have it. With the iPhone, from one moment to the next, you had the um, the opportunity to choose from one out of a million of apps, and you surely would find an app which serves your purposes. Mm-hmm. That's high quality. So what would medium quality look like? It would look like you need to um, go through lengthy configuration processes until you have hooked up your new iPhone to some sort of obscure market where 50% of the 120 apps which were available there didn't work. Okay. That's medium quality. And look, you, you, can, you can think about what low quality would be. So. Um, when you go from this value proposition, which would be for the iPhone, which would be um, immediate access to a million of apps where you definitely will find an app which does what you want. If that's what high quality is, you can mm-hmm. write that into requirements. I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, now I got it. Yeah. Okay. But you I can see very early. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that leads me to the question... When does someone need requirements engineering? Mm, um, this is this is a nice question. I, I, I like that because it implies something. It implies pain. Um, <laughs> okay, yes. Yeah, I, I'd say someone needs requirements engineering if he has A, pain in getting his products to the market, and second, and that's the more important, realized that that feeling he is experiencing is really pain. Let me um, go into details here. Um, I have met lots of people who have talked to me about how they are bringing their product or their products to market. And they have told me that this process is a really painful one. Um, there's lots of things which can go wrong. And when this, um, when the um, experience is, it has to be like this, mm-hmm. then there is pain, but there is no realization that the pain can be um, mediated. Yeah. So what usually the symptoms are when someone... Um, may want to think about having some requirements engineering while designing their products is something like products do not meet their market deadline. They're going into market deadline. Products are much more expensive than they were sketched to be. Then third, a very nice sentence I'm getting very often. 
we do not need a specification because our product is its own specification. I know that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and fourth, I get that very often as well, and it's a big misunderstanding. It, it's, it goes like this. We are developing our product in an agile project methodology. That means we do not need any specification documents. <laughs> yeah, marvelous. Yeah. Well, those are symptoms where I usually, when I have the chance, try to point fingers into wounds and mm -hmm. try to figure out if perchance um, requirements engineering has been done in to a lesser extent that then would have been necessary i see yeah. uh, if i now consider if if yeah if i consider that um there are the some part of uh, or requirements engineering has been introduced somehow someone by someone where can requirements engineering be located or should be located in the organization in the organization, that's a difficult question. It has lots of facets. Um, I have seen a few approaches which made sense uh, to the organization I, I saw it in. Mm -hmm. But, um, well, it depends on size. It depends on the domain uh, the organization is, is catering. Um, you usually would try to uh, figure out if a requirements engineering is done somewhere in product management or if we are speaking about agile terms somewhere at uh, product ownership where that role is executed mm -hmm. that would be something um, depending on the range of activities it may as well be located at the marketing management um yeah I, i've seen that i've seen that and it, it works every now or then and sometimes it does not and um, i have seen as uh, requirements engineering in uh, software development departments as well mm -hmm. um, which makes sense if we are talk about in talking about the lower layers yes. um, of requirements uh, the lower layers of specifications the technical specifications this is the usually where you would find and where you would locate requirements engineering mm -hmm. Is there some kind of, let's say, size of an organization, size of a project in which you would recommend to have uh, requirements engineering be installed or is it starts it even with one person? Um, I try to flip that question around um, and I, I'd, I'd like to, to get into an example. Let's say there is this um, very small organization. It's like two people. They just figure it out that they are really good at writing, um, let's say, Python software. Mm -hmm. And these two people are on the freelancing market, but they are working together all the time. Maybe they are, um, they are founding a small company for, for um, things like these. And when they are getting their, um, their contracts, when they are, they are getting their jobs, what would such a job look like? Such a job would usually have as a formal start for the job, have a contract. Okay. In this contract, there's everything which uh, you would usually expect in such a contract, like payment, like um, punishment if you don't meet your deadlines, like um, who may have possibly derived intellectual property in, in case intellectual property will be derived during this contract and so on and so on and so on. And then it's the very interesting second part. The second part is usually what are you supposed to do? Mm -hmm. yes. And that's specification. Mm -hmm. No one would ever think about contracting a small company without giving it a specification what to do. Right. At that very point, you usually don't call it specification, but it's exactly what you have. Mm -hmm. it's a specification and if you're doing that you have never ever thought about not going for a specification yeah so the the question now coming back to the question which i wanted to flip around is which reason would you have 
to start without a specification other than you have too much money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there is there is good reasons why why you should always think about how much effort I'm, am I going to, to put into having a good specification here already? Mm-hmm. Um, there's basically, there's four reasons and they are always there. Let me go through them briefly. First is the one um, which, I, which I already told about when, when you're having um, a contract with someone who de- develops something for you, that's a specification of services um, as, uh, as an a addendum to a contract you will always have it. You need to have it because um, you will de- derive your guarantees out of that very specification. Right. If the other, if the contractor doesn't deliver what he's supposed to deliver, what uh, what are you going to take recourse to if you have mm. nothing in Britain? Nothing. Nothing. No, that's right. Second yeah. one is um, requirements are long-lasting. They last as long as the product lives somewhere at some customer because that customer might complain he might just call you up and tell you it's not doing what i what i thought it would do so what what are you going to do then you're going to look up if that's a product error or if um, the product is supposed to do that where would you look at without a specification Third is requirements on products. They are complex. We are not talking about a um, stone age thing like putting a log under a big rock in order to move that mm-hmm. that rock. Yeah, it's it's more complex like that, right? Yes. We are talking about cars. We are talking about computers. We are talking about the Internet of Things and thing all those things. Requirements on products are complex in our world too complex to be able to memorize them all. So what do human beings do when they can't memorize everything? They write it down. There we are. It's a specification. And the end, requirements must be readily and easily available for everyone involved in that product life. Ooh, yeah, okay. That might be a challenge. Yeah. So I, mm-hmm. I, I mean to so if if I consider a project which which is not only twelve people or maybe one hundred, but maybe thousands of persons, and then yeah. you, you have a requirement like or you say for us it means we we have reasons for to doing a specification and you name the fourth one that we want to provide this kind of specification to everybody that he has access and access means not only that he has a physical access but he has also the capability to understand the specification i think that's a big challenge isn't it mm-hmm. that that's right um of course your example you you're taking it in in one particular dimension, you're taking it to an extreme. Okay. Uh, there's, of course, there's product, projects out there which are realized by thousands of people. Yes, definitely there are. Um, but that doesn't automatically imply that every single one of those people needs to have access at every single point of time to the whole repository of requirements for that product. Okay, that's true. Yeah. You, you may limit that mm-hmm. uh, in order to re- reduce reading complexity um, and acquaintance complexity for these developers in this product. But of course, in the beginning, when you are going to uh, look for your project people, you don't know who will have to have access to what particular spot at what particular time, right? And then talking about people leaving the project, leaving the company, leaving the mm-hmm. organization and uh, other people being shifted into that project. You, you cannot really expect that that they just ask everyone around them and they will tell them the, pro, the, um, the, uh, the specification. It's not possible. Okay. It's not. I see. So there's four good reasons and I, I think they are, they are met almost every time. If I consider that, what would you have just mentioned or explained to us here about requirements engineering and its uh, its different aspects? It pretty much sounds like a lot of planning, a lot of stuff which should be done beforehand, something which is not effectively uh, flexible, but something which is which more belongs to some plans and some structures and things, uh, how tos and things how things should be done. 
how does that match? You already have mentioned it at the beginning of this chat. That how does that all all these requirements engineering match to the agile approach? Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. I like that. It's this. Um, I think requirements engineering has well, it has this touch of being um, being out of the sixties, out of the seventies, something because it has been introduced. Um, during a project methodology like the waterfall model or the mm-hmm. V-model. And as you say, at those times where the waterfall or the V-model were used extensively, requirements engineer had a very fixed spot right at the beginning. And what happened then is, of course, inflexibility derived. Things were were forbidden to change. The world was forbidden to change because we had put so much effort into requirements engineering. How can reality change? It must not change because we have written down our requirements so nicely. Mm -hmm. Please, reality, don't change. This was exactly what, (laughs) yeah, this is exactly what what happened then. Um, Of course, this is ridiculous. You can't expect the world to, to... to stop turning because you wrote down a few requirements. This is this is not possible. Um, what what you can what what you can do is um, doing requirements uh, engineering really smoothly work together with more agile approaches. And I, I, I will I will give you a few hints which might help you um, steer into that direction. Okay. Um, for. The agile approach, we are usually running in, in sprints and then we make a sprint planning and then we are starting the next sprint and so on and so on. Mm. We are going to do that in turns. Um, what has been proposed in the literature and what is working, and I'm going to give you an example of uh, why this is working and what comes out, is um, that we do the requirements engineering per item in the product backlog. You do not have to look at requirements engineering in this one monolithic block done two years before the project even starts and the project runs then for another 20 years and when the outcome is achieved, no one needs it anymore. Um, No, you don't have to work like that. You can do requirements engineering just per product backlog item Maybe at the point of time where you put the product backlog item into the next sprint so that it becomes a sprint backlog item, then you can do your requirements engineering on it. Or if you think you will not be able to do that in the sprint, then you can use um, sprint backlog refinement items, which is an extension to the Agile approach, which means before you can put a product backlog item into a sprint, into a sprint, you need to have mandatory, you need to have a sprint backlog refinement item for that particular product backlog item, which means you're running the specification as an item in the sprint, and you're ending the first sprint with a good specification, and then you can do that in, um, you, you can realize it, you can develop it. That's quite a nice thing you can do. And mm-hmm. um, really similar is um, the, um, it's the um, middle between the old fashioned V model and the new agile approach uh, that is called feature driven development. And okay, it's yeah. a little bit like that. It's a bit out of both worlds. For instance, for feature-driven development, um, you usually do not talk about product backlog items, but you you talk about features. A feature is something a little bit more than a product backlog item. Uh, A feature may be something which needs to be developed over um, some sprints. And uh, this feature-driven development also uh, works with one phase in which a feature is, um, well, sketched. That means someone has the idea of bringing up a product feature. And the next phase, this product feature is um, specified in detail 
So there is experienced people looking behind every corner in order to make sure this has been well thought out. And then the third phase would be um, it's being developed. So you can, summing things up, you, you can definitely and easily bring requirements engineering and with requirements engineering and better product quality into more agile iterative approaches. It works definitely. There's no problem. And um, it's not only in paper and some professors talk about it. It's it's being done in lots of companies. Okay, I see. Yeah. Um uh, the the last two ones I fully understand to do it for uh, let's say for uh, for a definite sprint or doing it for a feature uh, to have the requirements engineering be done. However, if I consider I have a pure backlog item and then I should do some kind of requirements engineering, of course I can simply say uh, if I take the re uh, if I take the backlog item out of the backlog, I I do that initially. However. Uh, requirements engineering, as according as far as I have understood now, means also something like we are following some kind of common understanding, some common goal for the product itself at the very end. So how should the one who treats the backlog item stay or become familiar with this overall goal that his requirements, his specification is well done? Um, for requirements engineering, there is no fixed goal which has to be set for the very end in the very far future that's not necessary um the requirements engineering approach is uh, flexible enough to um, be um to be employed um on small item or a feature um there's this um you, you need to have that very far in the end, pro product goal in order to be able to employ a requirements engineering, that's not necessary, no. You, you can do without that. What you definitely will run into when you are employing requirements engineering, you will definitely run into finding potential contradictions between features for the future and features you may have already developed and you may have already marketed. But that's that, uh, those contradictions you, you may have found earlier if you had done that in the, in the V-model approach because in that case you would have had a few years for requirements engineering very upfront. But um, as we are seeing, the, the world uh, doesn't, doesn't work like that. The, the world turns and we need to, we need to turn again. Um, turn like the world and we cannot stop it because we want to do requirements engineering for a few years. There, that's rather a benefit which requirement engineering will, will get you. When we are talking about um, finding contradictions between the existing requirements for the already deployed system and um, new potential requirements for the new feature of from the new product backlog item which we want to develop in the future i think that's a benefit if we figure out well hey there is something which we did very different in a feature which we developed half a year ago do we really want to do this users might might find that awkward that at that very point uh, they uh, have to expect this and that system behavior and at that very other point they have to expect the opposite with the same input uh, right mm -hmm. so um, finding contradictions is, is rather a benefit of, of this approach and it's definitely not necessary ha to have this long-term goal somewhere uh, in the future which you're working towards in order to be able to re uh, do requirements engineering. It's simply not necessary, definitely not. So do I understand correctly that requirements engineering covers some kind of keeping the constants or the continuity of the requirements in the project so that they do not change? Or is requirements engineering indicating uh, that it's exactly doing this kind of changes and following it, doing the tracking? Um. It does a few things. Some some of those which you mentioned and some other things. Um, there is a very nice norm for that. That's the 29148-2011 norm, which covers exactly um, quality aspects, uh, requirements engineering should try to grant for the specification um, it's employed on. And um, 
these quality aspects um, they they cover lots of lots of areas. Um, they do cover some continuity because they do cover finding contradictions, finding inconsistencies, um, finding um, blanks, even finding where something is definitely missing. That's something for the continuity. Um, but uh, looking at the word continuity from slightly in different angle would say looking for nothing can change. And oh, that's okay. definitely mm -hmm. not the case. One particular important area of requirements engineering is managing change or put it the other way around. That's the word every one of us knows, change management. Change management is one particular piece definitely in the requirements engineering area. So what um, what a, a good requirements engineer should be able to be a good change manager and, and try to, to figure out why are we going to change things, who's involved, what exactly are we changing, what's the consequences of what we are changing. If we shake something here, what else will shake somewhere a completely different position in the product? How can we manage it doesn't? This is definitely um, core questions every requirements engineer who is working as a change manager uh, has to face from the day-to-day -day basis. Okay, now I got it. So, Joachim, I think we have gotten a quite good survey of requirements engineering in that particular manner or of, or also of requirements management, covering change management. That was also pretty much new for me. Is there anything that comes to your mind that you really would like to put in at this point and we haven't mentioned yet? I'd like, I think at the, um, if we are going to the end of this, I'd really like to, to stress out the, the, the benefits of requirements engineering really gives you. Let me start with a survey, the Standish Group um, Chaos Report, which they released for me, I, I don't think year to year base, but they released it somewhere in 2008. And they, what they asked is they, they asked seasoned project managers um, to, to, to state reasons for their project successes. And they asked others, um, project managers, to, to state reasons for why they thought, why they thought their, their project were unsuccessful. And about 50% of um, project success um, was attributed to taking care of requirements the project has set out to meet and about 50 ah it's 45 ish percent of um reasons for why projects failed were attributed to not having paid sufficient attention to requirements oh. the project has set out to fail um so what so what does What is it? What is the, the magic? It, well, of course, it's not magic. What's in it? What's in requirements engineering that makes things go better? And there's four good reasons. Um, first is a good set of requirements or in other terms and specification gets everyone on the same page. Why is that so? There's customers or salespeople on the one end of the chain and developers and testers on the very, very other end. They never, ever talk to each other in real life. If we have a good specification, this is a common ground. This is a very small piece of language both share. And if we do it good, then this means that the one having the first idea, the customer or some salespersons, will be able to, to talk directly via the specification to those at the very other end they never ever meet developers or testers that's one reason the second reason is good requirements engineering cuts down development costs and why is that so because if we do not do requirement engineering in a good fashion we will have an unprecise wish list which we call a specification so what Put yourself into the shoes of a developer. What would you do when you were asked to give an estimate on an unprecise wish list? Yeah, okay, I know that. would yeah. definitely come back with a very high estimate. And why is that so? Because you are going to be nailed if you exceed that. So you get an, get an unprecise wish list. You don't have the slightest clue 
what the customer who has set up with this unprecise wish list wants. But your task is to make it happen. Yeah, do it. <laughs> and the question is, how much does it cost? Yeah. Of course, you have to prepare for everything. You don't understand one single sentence. So one single sentence can mean anything. So you're going to um, deliver a high estimate, right? So if you have a good specification, the developers who are estimating the costs for the contract will be able to get better estimates. This cuts down development costs. Third, good requirements engineering shortens market uh, time to market. And why is that so? Because if you're going for a non-precise wish list, what will the customer do right before product launch? No, I never meant it like that. Why didn't you ask how I meant it? <laughs> you think the project will be on time like that? Of course it doesn't. It's not on time like that. And this is number four, very, very organically, product quality increases. If things turn out not to be well thought out too late, that means missed deadlines, high costs. And in the end, you do not have much leeway to th change things to, to the better, right? In the end, time is always, time is always up. That means the product quality goes down the drain and And then what always happens is the product is not regarded solution, but as a workaround. And who one likes to buy a second workaround when he can buy a solution from someone else? So that's the benefits you you get. That's that's quite clearly that's not not much thinking involved in this. Let, let's assume I'm convinced by these benefits, but I I do not see in my company in my project I don't see. Uh, or I don't have the requirements engineering be established. Do you have for me some kind of top three details or questions which I should follow if I want to do requirements engineering? Okay, yeah. I think can could can do one better. I have only two. Okay. <laughs> um, first of all, be, before you think about, I'd like to do requirements engineering in a more professional way. Um, I think I'd suggest you take a clear view on the development process you're running and to figure out where might my requirements engineering activities fit in. It's not like a fire and forget missile. It's um, in order to, to get the, the full advantage, it's, it's quite necessary to take a look at where and when you, you want it to happen and where and when you can afford it to happen, of course. So that, that's my first, uh, my first advice is Take a look where you have the possibility to slip it into your development process. And the second I'd say is if you're putting a new focus on the requirements engineering aspect and you haven't done so before, please don't invent the wheel again. There's lots of people out there who can help you get up to speed and boost your learning curve. Um, it's It's like learning um, programming. Like uh, when you figure out I, I need um, a piece of software in Java, you usually will want to talk to someone who already can do that. And the first thought is not, well, that's easy. I can just learn it from a book in two days mm -hmm. with 20 pages. Then I have everything I got. It's not like that. Um, requirements engineering is um, a structural approach which needs some experience and to get up speed and boost your learning curve. It's, uh, it's, I think it's worthwhile to, to ask a requirements engineer to help you find a way. And those are, I think those are the two, two advices I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd give to you. Yeah, I, I hear something like there is some demand for seniority. So you need not only a little bit of experience, so something like I have read 100 pages of this important book, uh, but it's something like you should have some experience in some uh, projects. You should have done this kind of requirements engineering and then you get the bigger boost. Or if, if you invite such a person into your, into your starting of requirements engineering, then you get a much force, uh, you, you, you increase the pace much more faster. Exactly. The cost argument just uh, is the most convincing one. Okay, I see. Um, if, you, if you try to um, catch up on requirements engineering speed, 
just on your own, what, what will you do? You will usually read a book, maybe go to one training um, one day somewhere, another city, and come back and say, well, okay, sh should be enough for me. I'm going to be the requirements engineer here, part-time, of course, um, and I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. Then what you're going to use, what's usually going to happen, and you can perfectly compare that to the same approach with a software engineer, maybe, or a hardware engineer. You try, you're learning then, you're building up experience you have not mastered the subject because you were just at a training and you just read a book and every error you make and you will make errors while um, getting up to speed and while getting to experience will cost you twice, right? It, it, it will cost, um, it will cost the, the, um, the, the product, it will cost the project and, um, yeah, that's uh, that's something. And you, nevertheless, you you have that that requirements engineer on your payroll as a requirements engineer, which is not doing one hundred percent of the job you can usually want from a requirements engineer. You don't know you don't need that. You you can get up to speed better with getting someone who um, who can help you with setting this up at your company, right? Yeah, interesting. Interesting. I think it's mandatory or it's at least helpful, supportive if uh, someone who wants to introduce that gets this kind of booster for his own processing, for his own requirements engineering. Okay, Joachim, many thanks. Thank you very much for, the, for these details. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you are welcome. And uh, I'm very happy what we have met here in the chat. So see you. Have a nice weekend. And Thank bye you very bye. much. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was our tech chat about requirements engineering with Joachim Reinke. Thank you again, Joachim. It was a pleasure to have you in the show. And to the audience, please keep two things in mind. First, visit the show notes at embeddedsuccess.com slash episode 38 to get further details and links and come into touch with Joachim, get connected. So everything is available. Go on, please. And Second thing is forward me your proposals for further interviewing guests or topics, as I mentioned before, so at embedded at embeddedsuccess.com slash contact. And there is a third thing, of course, spend me rating at iTunes, five stars preferred, prominent link for your convenience at my website. This was the remarkable 38th episode of the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. I'm Georg Loder. Thank you for listening.